It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Where are people finding community in a society that's becoming increasingly secular? Each year, thousands of churches close in the U.S. People are less interested in participating in a congregation, and the number of people practicing religion is declining. Casper Turkayel is a Ministry Innovation Fellow at Harvard. He says it's happening across all age groups. So famously, my generation, the millennials, more than a third of us, when asked what religious tradition or uh, community are you part of, tick none of the above. So we are known as the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. If people aren't going to church, where are they going to explore the big questions, probe what it is to be human, and seek community? The answer isn't what you'd expect. Casper Turkayle says fitness classes, justice groups, and makerspaces are filling the role of a church. They're providing community and identity. No matter where community is found, Turkayle says it's badly needed right now. Our society is disconnected from meaning. In a culture of growing isolation, suicides, violence, and addiction are on the rise. Turkayle sits down with other religious leaders to discuss how communities help us make meaning. Omni Glover co-directs the Sanctuaries, an interfaith arts community in Washington, D.C. Rami Nashashibi is a MacArthur Fellow and co-founded the Inner City Muslim Action Network, or IMAN. Sarah Heminger is a social entrepreneur and scientist who co-founded Thread in Baltimore. Here's Turkayle. I grew up outside of a religious tradition. Uh, I grew up in England. Both my parents are Dutch, and I believe, apart from Denmark, Holland is the least religious country in the world. Um, I didn't know anyone who went to church. I didn't really know anyone who was religious. Um, And when I came out as a teenager, uh, religion was either irrelevant or cruel. Um, I did not see much point in it. It seemed like hocus-pocus. Uh, and uh, I, I, I just had no time for it. But as I grew older and I became a climate activist as a, a young man, I was very involved in mobilizing young people around the United Nations uh, Climate Change Conference. I started to see how the leaders that I was uh, most inspired by and the stories from history that seemed to be most impactful in changing culture and changing policy, religion kept showing up in this interesting way. Uh, congregations as centers of organizing, spiritual practices that sustained leaders through uh, tremendous difficulties. Uh, and, and I grew slightly interested. So by the time I came to graduate school to do, uh, to do public policy, I kept meeting people from the divinity school, which I thought was just for Catholic priests. Like, I, I had no idea what a divinity school was. Uh, and it turns out it's this much broader exploration of culture and meaning and community and ritual and justice. And I felt that uh, here was a place that I could learn about the things that I had a sense of longing for, that I couldn't explain and couldn't quite have language for, but, but that spoke to me in some way. Um, but as I entered the Divinity School, I was not religious. And so I kind of looked around uh, into the world, into the U.S., and saw this massive uh, kind of social shift that we're in the midst of, um, of declining religious institutions uh, and increasing social isolation. So let me just ask, who here grew up going to a congregation regularly, a church, a synagogue, a temple, anything? <laughs> who today regularly goes to a congregation? 
A, a few handful, yeah. This is a totally unscientific poll. Uh, let me, we have two PhDs on our panel, so let me just say this was not a good <laughs> representative uh, group. But nonetheless, I think that story illustrates some of what's happening uh, in our country in a very short amount of time. There is tremendous uh, decline in attendance, uh, in practice, uh, and also the way in which we describe ourselves. Um, so famously, my generation, the millennials, more than a third of us, when asked what religious tradition or uh, community are you part of, take none of the above. So we are known as the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, rather than our Catholic sisters. Um, and new data from Pew that's coming out in the fall will show that Gen Z is even higher than that. Um, and across every age group, actually, across every generation, silent generation, baby boomer, Gen X, each one of those is seeing an increase in the disaffiliation uh, of people from religious traditions. So much so that there are more than 3,500 churches that close every year in the United States. Uh, the United Methodist Church cannot keep up with its normal processes to help churches close because they're closing at such a fast rate. And this trend shows up differently in different communities within the Jewish world. Uh, 70% of non-Orthodox Jews marry outside of the faith. Uh, and even amongst uh, religious communities that are growing, uh, so uh, Buddhism, for example, or Islam, uh, often through immigration, there's often a real generational gap in terms of how people relate to their tradition. Um, so the, uh, the phenomenon of unmosked young Muslims uh, is now a thing just as much as unchurched uh, young Christians or people who grew up with a Christian context. And the language that we have to describe ourselves, those who, who sit outside of those traditions, is very, uh, it's, it's shaped by negation. So we are the nuns, the none of the above, the unaffiliated, the spiritual but not religious. Uh, there's a real hesitancy to affiliate with any uh, institution. And that's not just in religion, of course, that we see that anti-institutional uh, frame showing up in all sorts of places. Um, but it means that there is very little positive labeling. It's very, there's very little opportunity to gather around a new identity. But in my work, what's been so interesting to see is a rise of community organizations that are wholly secular, fitness communities, arts groups, justice groups, maker spaces, that nonetheless fulfill the kind of things you might expect to see in a religious congregation. Um, so one of my favorite uh, uh, examples of this, just because it's so extreme, is CrossFit. Do we have any CrossFitters in the room? Yes, you few, you brave few. Um, I always like to say, and I, and I can say this as a, a Harvard man, how do you know if someone does CrossFit, goes to Harvard, or is a vegan? They tell you. And so, uh, I'm sorry I outed you, uh, forgive me. But there's this very evangelical zeal within the CrossFit culture, right? Um, when you want to open a CrossFit box, which is not just a normal gym, but these are, these are group classes that are very high intensity, uh, if you want to open one of these gyms, you have to go to a two-day seminar, and you have to write an essay. And in this essay, they're not looking for your business acumen. They're not even looking for your fitness background. They're looking for one thing. Has your life been changed by CrossFit, and do you want to change other people's lives with CrossFit? So it has this, has this very kind of powerful evangelical zeal. And people are living their lives, their community-oriented lives, their meaning-making lives in spaces like these gyms. Weddings and funerals uh, are held in these spaces. There'll be drinks after work on a Friday. There'll be mums groups. There'll be talent nights where people pick up the cello for the first time in 20 years. Uh, when someone's diagnosed with breast cancer, people are raising money for each other. Uh, in Southern California, politicians are doing stump speeches in CrossFit boxes because 
they're such powerful communities that hold each other to uh, values and to account to live out those values. So there's this really interesting uh, civic infrastructure um, that doesn't look anything like religion on the surface, but once you start to look at the behaviors, it starts to look mightily religious indeed. Another example is the dinner party. Um, Not just a dinner party, but an organization that brings people together in their 20s and 30s who've suffered loss uh, at a young age, perhaps the death of a parent or a loved one. Um, And this started out of the the way so many of these communities start, out of necessity. Uh, Lennon Flowers and Carla Fernandez and a few others uh, had lost a parent at a young age. And every time Mother's Day came around or Thanksgiving came around, uh, it was the moment of the conversation killer. You know, are you going to see your family? Oh, actually, my mom's died. Oh. Um, And so they wanted to be with other people who just had the same experience with whom they could talk openly. And they started to get together for dinner, very simply, a potluck meal. And more people came, and more people came, and suddenly someone in Chicago, and someone on the East Coast, and suddenly there's 400 tables with with community hosts that are helping to to just create space for people to talk about life after loss, Um, the fullness of that life, not just grief and and suffering, but um, the new chapter of life that it has given, sometimes the the relief, uh, sometimes the joy as well as the sadness. So all sorts of communities were were popping up that were interesting to us, um, in part because they seem to be doing these religious things. But nonetheless, we live in a culture of growing isolation, as you know. And I feel this is a real theme this year at Aspen. Um, We've had David Brooks, of course, and so many others speak powerfully to this. Um, Today, one in four Americans say they have no one to talk to about the things that are most meaningful in their lives. And that includes family members. One in four. One in five always or very often feel lonely, 20%. The increase uh, uh, in mental health, mental ill health, whether anxiety, depression, um, all, the, all the symptoms uh, of, of feeling disconnected showing up. I've spent the last three years living as a proctor uh, in the, uh, the Harvard dorms with freshmen. Um, and just to see even, you know, these young people are 18, 19, 17, um, The generational gap between myself uh, and them was already startling when it came to to some of the uh, mental illness challenges. And of course, also our impact on on our physical health. Being isolated uh, has all sorts of impacts, of course, addiction, uh, even suicide. um, But even a diagnosis of cancer, uh, you're more likely to find a diagnosis sooner if you're well-connected. Because it takes usually up to four people to tell you you should go get that thing checked out by the doctor. And if you don't have four people in your life who are going to tell you that, it it takes longer before you end up in the doctor's office. So all of these uh, uh, kind of social isolation pressures are having enormous impacts on our health. So my question is that I I really want to explore today is is the um, challenging invitation uh, between our uh, desire for community, our hunger for belonging, that sense of wanting to, to be part of something bigger than ourselves, And also, especially in America, uh, our fierce uh, joy of individualism, the the freedom of choices that we get to make, the way we express ourselves, um, the the power of of our individual creativity. Um, And as we look at at meaning-making as a frame, perhaps in that dialectic, uh, to, to remember some of the ways in which communities help us make meaning. So, for example... 
when we talk about community, very often we think about it's just a relationship between you and me or you and you, uh, that there's this kind of you know, social connection. But community is much richer than that. Uh, it places us in a story across time, uh, a sense that we know where we come from, um, that we have peoples and ancestors um, and communities that we come from that give us a place in this moment that makes sense within a longer history. Uh, We have a calendar that we live in time as it passes. We have rituals that mark moments of transition. We have ways of connecting to the place in which we live. The way in which community is not just a social connection, but is a connection across these different layers of meaning. But these structures also constrain. You know, as a gay man, I'm really glad that I didn't grow up in some religious communities. Uh, Religious communities have had many times very strong boundaries of what keeps you inside. And if you break those norms, what keeps you outside? So in this conversation, I'm not looking for us to return to some kind of 1950s idyll uh, for so many reasons. Um, But I want us to start thinking about what might be new structures of belonging that we can create Um, which honor our individuality and the gifts that we have to give, um, but also uh, force us not to only ask the question, who am I, but whose am I? Who are we in relationship with? To whom we will submit ourselves? Who do we trust enough? And what what structures are we willing to create for one another that will hold us to do things that we might not always want to do? I feel that tension. I don't know if you do in your life. Uh, I want to be able to just go on an adventure every weekend. I don't want to show up at the same place and do the same boring things. Um, so that, that tension is what I want us to explore today. So I'm very excited uh, to hear from all three of you. And the first thing I'll ask is, is just for each of you to describe what it is that you do. I think at Aspen, so often we hear about the wonderful ideas that, that people have, um, but I want you to get a sense of where those ideas come from. What are the communities that these are grounded in and that they come out of? Um, so perhaps, Amini, would you, would you lead us and tell us a little bit about the sanctuaries? I come from a call and response uh, background. So I'm often going to check in with you to see how you are and if you're following me and if you're here with me. And so the invitation is, if I say, how are you doing? You can good. just say, good, good. Okay. that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. So again, my name is Omni. Omni means faith. Isn't that interesting? And my faith walk so far has led me to the co-creation of the sanctuaries founded by Eric Martinez Resley. And um, I was able to join him in this mission at a pivotal point where we got to choose uh, where we want to go in healing disconnectedness and establishing what it means to be well across cultures, across faith. And so sanctuaries was bred out of that yearning of different types of people wanting to connect with each other authentically. So what is authentically? Meaning that Uh, I can show up as all the different sides of myself and be okay. So I don't know about you, but sometimes when I meet someone new cross-culturally, one aspect of myself, I'm going to dip my little toe in Mm -hmm. and see, does that work? (laughs) Can you connect with that? Mm -hmm. And if you can, then maybe I'll go forward. If you can't, maybe I'll try another aspect of myself. And then you know what I always do? I'll smile. Maybe that's the language that you'll relate to. So what we do at Sanctuaries is what is the language that we can relate to across these seeming boundaries of culture and faith or non-faith or understanding or non-understanding? What we find is that we're all searching and seeking meaning, nothing new. 
Mm. Uh, we may call it another name. We may go about it in different ways, but we're all dipping our little toe in to mm. see, does this, I, this aspect of myself connect with you? Similar to what I just did, telling you that I come from a culture of call and response. Mm. And would you participate in that with me? Because mm. when I say, how you doing? You say, I'm all right, I'm good. And some of you did that. Some of you may not be warmed up yet, <laughs> but <laughs> the opportunity is, do I have the fortitude to keep trying and keep trekking? Uh, sanctuaries is more than space, more than people. It is a calling to heal. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother, beautiful woman, um, really teaches me. This is one story that she always would tell me as I grew up. Uh, She was deeply in love with my father. I mean, just her everything, her sun, her moon, her stars. You heard, you have you heard songs like that? My sun, my moon, my stars, all of that. That was my father. He's transitioned, so I'm speaking in past tense. And my mother would always talk to me about this love and that the heartbreak that came out of this love and then that there was a choice in that grieving, in that despair, whether or not to go on. There was a choice whether or not to hold on to this side or to move to another side, that she had a choice in that. And she will always speak to me about, uh, she saw it clearly. If she went one pathway, she would continue to be here with me. And if she went another pathway, she would have made a choice to give up and Mm -hmm. transition. It was very clear for her. So I grew up hearing this story over and over again about choice. And so that infueled me that the power of choice is my own. And I want to connect with those parts and pieces that encouraged me to stay here. And we believe here in sanctuaries that connecting with people cross cultures, cross every perceived boundary is that fuel to stay here, that we are connected past these identities. So in sanctuaries, we're constantly cultivating the soil. We're constantly sculpting away. What does it look like to authentically create meaning, show up as myself and be all right, Mm -hmm. to be safe, Mm -hmm. to be brave, to dip my toe in? to dip another toe in, to dip another toe in, see if it works and if it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, I can still say I can take a break and come back. Mm. So it's looking at how to build community in the time of now. It's a precious question. How do you really stay connected to yourself and others? There's been times that I felt that I had to lose myself to be connected to you. Mm. Is that true? So it's a deep questioning. It's an open abandon for curiosity. I really do believe that curiosity says that I can continue to question things and that one day there will be an answer that's suitable for me to continue to move forward with in a meaningful way. Mm. So sanctuaries is at that cusp of questioning, at that cusp of interfaith, understanding of how to be with one another from atheist to devout Christian to devout Muslim. We are here all co-creating some soil Mm. that says that we can breathe in this world when sometimes it feels, often it feels that I can't breathe. Mm. So thank you for having me. And sharing some stories and some calls. Are y'all all right? We all oh, we're right. good. Oh, you're we're getting good. so good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you warmed up right up. <laughs> all right, so how do you follow Rami, that? For, 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 yeah, well, don't worry. I'll give, right. I'll give you a minute. I, 
Amini, thank you so much. Would, would, you, would you help us see what, what the sanctuaries looks like in D.C. in terms of what do folks do? Like, how, how, how do you build those connections? Yeah, absolutely. So what we do is that we build power, we shift culture, and we heal spirits, mm. all through innovative arts-based strategies. So that means that you have a visual artist who pairs with a grassroots justice campaign, the Climate March specifically right here, or the yeah. Women's March when I was leading. Mm-hmm. And uh, you take your visual artistry and you work with that grassroots justice campaign to see how do I create a banner? How do I create a poster? How do I create a puppet? How do I create Mm. uh, some form of visual arts that speaks to the meaning of what you're doing? Mm. And this is nothing new. It's been done since the beginning of time. How do you activate people visually? Mm. And so what we do is we partner with these artists. We teach these artists. We train these artists up in strategies of how to get at things from different angles, Mm. how to keep dipping their pinky in, their toe in from different angles because it's going to take gentle nudging. Sometimes it's going to take a great disruption. Mm. And we're showing you how to stay resilient, how to honor yourself, Mm. how to speak to these different aspects and identities, and how to shake things up. We Mm. are uh, meaningful disruptors Mm. in D.C. uh, to what is norm. So it can look look like training. It can look like um, pairing you with a grassroots justice campaign to actually do the work. It can look like creating a CD to get the message out, creating a PSA to get a message out about domestic violence. We have a number of partners that we work with on their campaigns, and we infuse it with arts-based innovative strategies. That's powerful. I appreciate it. Thank you, Yeah, wonderful. thank you for the question. Rami. All right. First of all, salamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Ashe. Iman is uh, the Inner City Muslim Action Network, and Iman, mm. like your name, also means faith mm-hmm. in Arabic and Imani, Swahili. Yeah. Uh, so... And it is, you know, an organization now that's 22 years old. We incorporated in 97. I'm the founding executive director, but I've always had an extraordinary team, and people have been with us in the trenches for mm. really a quarter of a century. Mm. Come out of a experience that was really molded on the south side of Chicago, a place and place that my mother grew up in as a, as a you know, one of the first Palestinian refugees to mm. find herself on the south side of Chicago in May of 1948. Um, although I, I didn't, I grew up, I came back to the South Side very much as an outsider. I had mm. grown up for most of my life in, you know, at least seven different countries, 12 different cities, mm. moving different schools, going through a whole journey myself before I landed back in the United States for college. But one of the things that Iman grew out of is, an, you know, an experience that made us realize in the early 90s, mid-90s, that... The American Muslim community, even at that time, had an eclectic set of experiences on one hand on the South Side, deeply rooted in an extraordinarily dynamic black American Muslim experience that comes out of a tradition from, of course, the Great Migration Mm -hmm. to great cultural, political, artistic, thriving, dynamic resistance to, you know, quite frankly, the extraordinarily uh, tremendous structures of white supremacy and racism Mm -hmm. in a city like Chicago. Two refugees and immigrants that were coming from all over the world. And um, again, we settled in the same type of patterns that were, you know, a major urban center like Chicago was producing. So immigrants were settling in different spaces. There were certain spaces where there was lots of overlap. And in this particular neighborhood on the south side where we started the organization, you had um, that at one point was an exclusively kind of the last bastion of an ethnic white stronghold that had been moving away from black migration, Mm. constantly trying to toe the line 
finally, by the mid-90s, it had become now a predominantly black and Latino community that is moving from another part of the city and also a port of entry for a lot of you know, Arab and immigrants and refugee children who are now growing up. And uh, that's where the, really the cauldron of the organization formed. And we started an organization that was committed to the idea of health, wellness, and healing in the inner city, drawing certainly from our tradition, but realizing that we needed to form an alignment within our, tr- in our community to then be formed meaningful bridges across other communities. Mm-hmm. Fast forward 22 years, the organization has really grown. We have a full-time chapter in Atlanta. On the south side, it's now a $10 million-plus mm-hmm. operating organization with several million dollars in just capital work. We have kind of these four arms, if you will, that are all really working collaboration in much mm-hmm. of the same way. We really stress a holistic approach to, to health and, and, mm-hmm. and healing. Uh, and so we have a holistic uh, up, you know, health center. It's an FQHC lookalike right now and aspiring to be a full federally qualified health center, God willing, in the next year. And you know, that, uh, in that health center, there's everything from primary care to intense behavioral uh, health to uh, oral care. And um, you know, it's, it's an, an extraordinary health care that is very connected to every aspect of the, our work that we do. And we have uh, clinics and we have spaces uh, and physicians and providers that are very integrated into our larger work. We have an arm that is an organizing and advocacy arm, and we take on the issues. And we're, you know, Chicago, we're, we're kind of dyed in the wool. <laughs> community uh, organizers from Chicago, and but that have thought a lot about the tradition of, for instance, an Alinsky IAF community organizing tradition through the through the lens, though, of faith and right. through the history and the prism of other organizing models, from the Panthers to the organizing traditions of, you know, Central American, you know, movements, and have thought through that in a way that is attempt to integrate it genuinely and holistically through an organizing training that we now facilitate across the country. We've had hundreds, if not thousands of people that have gone through our organizing trainings and lead campaigns and have passed laws around criminal justice reform. We work very heavily on that issue, whether it's housing and very intensely in food justice work. Um, uh, we have a campaign called the Corner Store Campaign, and partly because of the messy intersection of, uh, and also dynamic intersection of Arab predominantly Arab immigrants and other Middle Eastern immigrants who sociologists uh, would dub middleman minorities in the post-70s and 80s who kind of settled in predominantly low-income black communities, took up and were uh, presiding over businesses, corner stores, liquor stores, you know, fish spots, um, in many urban centers, you probably found this, uh, you know, whether you're in Oakland, whether you're in, in Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, uh, um, New Orleans, lots of this was present. And in, in some very real ways, there was dy- the tense, in, uh, intense tension between uh, the, the store owners and, and the residents. And so for us as an organization that was coming out of a very diverse kind of black American and urban kind of experience, it just made sense for us to tackle this campaign. Sarah, tell us about Thread. Sure. Uh, so Thread is a community of people in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, we've been building this community for the last 15 years. Um, what we aim to do is to build a movement to end social isolation and create community where everyone feels seen and loved and known and understood. Mm. And part of the reason we feel this is so important is that we think that by doing so, we actually can realize what was originally intended in the civil rights movement mm. and bring about racial and social economic justice. Mm. Um, so for me, 
I'm a huge nerd. Um, I, I kind of always start in the science, which is, you know, if, if this if this idea of social isolation hasn't yet resonated um, with you, just to put a fine point on it, um, you know, you've made a convincing case that we're more isolated now than ever. But what does that amount to? Mm, right. um, what that amounts to is the longest uh, standing human research study in our history came out of. Harvard, um, 724 men followed from their early teens and 20s into their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and just asked a simple question, um, what would be the predictor of whether or not they were happy and healthy? Uh, who would have cancer, dementia, heart disease? And at first they thought it would be things like educational attainment or race. It turned out that the predictor was something quite simple, which was, did you have a handful, two or three close relationships that when it really mattered, when you needed to call someone at three in the morning, that you had someone you could call. I'm Italian, so it's like we always say, do you got a guy? Like, (laughs) you got a guy when it really matters. And the men who had that were the ones who actually literally had less cancer, dementia, and heart disease. And so when we are suffering from social isolation as a society, it is impacting our health. Highest rates of suicide, mental illness in our country in ways that we have never seen before, and it is impacting people of all demographics. Um, I've also experienced this from a very personal um, side of thing, just kind of lived through um, different forms of trauma and oppression myself. So First at birth, I was born not breathing um, with an APGAR of one and a facial deformity, which made um, school somewhat difficult in terms of kids teasing. Um, But then when I was eight years old, I was actually kidnapped from my house in the middle of the night by someone um, and miraculously was able to escape and make it home. Um, Shortly after that happened... I grew up in a very religious community, and my father found out that the pastor of the church that we were attending was uh, misusing money. When my dad revealed that to the congregation, instead of firing the pastor, they decided to shun my family. Um, So for eight years, from the time I was eight to the time I was 16, uh, no one could speak to me. We'd go to church three days a week, Um, other kids, adults, my own cousins, aunts and uncles. Um, So... In some bizarre way, I had this you know, life experience very early on where um, I had this deeply connected inner circle within my family, my mom and dad and my siblings, and yet I faced a lot of different trauma and oppression throughout this time. And so for me, um, you know, Thread was really founded... Um, to address this social isolation. The way that we build relationships across lines of difference is we enroll high school freshmen who rank academically in the bottom 25% of their class. So um, the average GPA of, for example, our first cohort at Douglas High School was 0.15 on a 4.0 scale. Um, Our students face enormous challenges outside of the school day. Once they're in thread, they stay with us for 10 years. Um, it is longer than your average American marriage, um, mm. and it's permanent. So once you're in thread, you right. cannot get out of thread. Um, you have to opt in, but we really mean that in 15 years, we've never unenrolled a young person because you don't unenroll right. someone from your family. Right. You didn't like birth your child and be like, eh, didn't really like this one. 
let me try again. Um, And so in Thread, then, each young person has four adults. Those four adults, the way to think about it is, what would you do for your own children? Hmm. Um, And and thinking about it, if you have more than one child, each of your children is different. So you're not going to do the same thing for each child. You might drive them to school. You might pack their lunches. You might help them with their homework. Well, that's exactly what we do. The four adult, uh, adults in Thread do those things, but they also might help a parent find a job or help a younger sibling get enrolled in daycare so the parent can actually work at the job. Um, and so for us, the journey has really been one of, um, you know, the reason that we started with high school students who were underperforming is that my husband, we lovingly joke, was the first Thread student. So um, he grew up in a working class family. His mom was in a bad car accident. Um, Because of that, she couldn't walk. She couldn't work. They lost their home. They moved from suburban Indianapolis into public housing. She became depressed and addicted to drugs. Then she began selling drugs to support her own habit. Um, That all coincided with his transition into high school. So instead of worrying about how he was doing academically, he was worried about, like, what am I going to eat? Is the electricity going to be on? Am I going to have clothing? Like, just the basic human needs, and so incredibly distracted. And there was just a group of teachers who said, um, Hmm. yeah, no, we're not going to let this happen. So instead of just telling him, like, work harder, do better, they really saw... um, who he was and what he was going through. And so they would pack his lunch and give him rides to school. Um, and, and what that did was it made it a lot easier for him to make decisions. Um, it's easier to go to school if you don't have to take three buses and have a ride. It's a lot easier to go to school if you aren't hungry and have food. It's a lot easier to go to school if you have clothes that are clean and you're not worried about smelling bad and being teased. Um, and so the thing that you know, I think has been, you know, for him, he ended up graduating from high school, going on to the Naval Academy. Um, We've now been married 20 years, come next week. Um, Congratulations. (laughs) Longer than the 10 in the average, beating the average. Um, But the the point is actually something quite different, Mm. which is... um, We've learned something really critical and very slowly, unfortunately, over the last 15 years, which is I thought in the beginning when I met our young people, I was sure of it. Like, nothing was wrong with them. They are not broken. Like, all I saw was beautiful, talented Mm. young people. And because I had an N of one that said, like, I just thought, like, if Ryan could do it, everyone could go to the Naval Academy. (laughs) Like, that was the data that I had. What I did not understand was just how profoundly broken the systems were mm. and how profoundly oppressive they were. And, and that was something that came gradually when our first cohort of students all graduated from high school. They all went to college. They finished college. And then they came out of college and they couldn't find jobs. Mm. Right? And so you have enough experiences like that. It's this gradual awakening of mm. it's just not as simple as checking these boxes um, of education. And, and, then it, and then it goes deeper, right? So I think about it, um, you know, it's like lazy eye, um, kidnapping, and cult aside, like, my life is actually pretty normal. Like, my trauma had a very, like, mm-hmm. distinct right. beginning and a distinct mm-hmm. end. My kids' trauma 
doesn't. Right. Like, 84% of the schools in Baltimore City, you cannot drink the water mm. in the schools. 42% of all youth in Baltimore City have at least three aces. Mm. Like, this is not normal. It is not normal to have helicopters flying over mm. your house at night. Like, my life is now normal. Their life is, like, they continue to experience um, this trauma and this oppression. And so when we think about, like, what is THREAD really doing? Mm-hmm. Yes, we're, we are graduating young people from high school. We are checking those boxes. Those are critical. If you take um, young people in Baltimore City that have a GPA of less than 1.0 in their freshman year, only 6% graduate from high school. Mm-hmm. And THREAD, that number is 71%. If you extend out to six years, it's 85%. So yes, that is important. But that is not mm-hmm. enough unless we change how we function as a society. And, and the change can't just be something that's legislated. We've tried that. That hasn't worked. Like, we've integrated the school system. When we think about Dunbar High School, the school that we were founded at, um, it, our school system was integrated in 1956. And what we ended up with was white flight out of the city, mm. followed by middle-class black flight out of the city. And so now Dunbar High School is actually both racially mm. and class segregated. So in mm. many ways, you could describe it as actually being worse mm. than it was in 1956. Mm. Um, and so what we're really trying to do is create, um, one, a set of non-dominant norms for how we treat each other. What we're not interested in is um, creating a diverse community where we welcome people into white spaces. (laughs) That is what we are not doing. What we are doing is figuring out how do we create a a non-dominant set of norms where every single person, exactly as you were saying, can be their full self on day one. Mm. So instead of having to do this, just able to jump in because you're in an environment where where it's understood that that's how we're all going to show up. And then having the ability to simultaneously hold, okay, that's a tradition and a culture and a, that is a core to who you are. And how do we hold then the thing that's core to who I am at the same time Mm -hmm. with mutual respect and admiration, right? So it's not that one of us has to lose who we are for the other, but it's how do we hold those things at the same time. So that's, that's the culture we're creating, um, and that's the, that's the ultimate change we're looking to see is how do we create a societal change in the country as a whole where we learn to behave differently? Because the lie that I think is being told mm. is that this dominant set of norms is only bad for poor people right. of color. Right. Right. Like, we've got to get that out of our heads. Yeah. Can you it say is, that again, Sarah? Because it's, <laughs> like, really, it's really important like, to hear. Yeah, the idea that dominant norms are only bad for poor people of color. Mm. Dominant norms are bad for all of mm-hmm. us. Like, Look at the opioid epidemic. The fact that white women between the ages of 35 and 50, we, I, my demographic is going to be the only demographic in our country's history where I will die statistically younger than my mother. Hmm. The only, only demographic. What is happening to middle-aged white women in this country? Two, two things are driving the de- death rate. What are they? Suicide, overdose, just a slower form of suicide. Mm-hmm. This is what we're really talking about, right? So when we begin to get to the point where we can understand it's not about a group of haves helping right. a group of have-nots. Right. 
it is that my ability to thrive is inextricably bound up in yours. Like, yeah. I can't do me without you doing you. We yes. have to figure out how to do it together. Yeah. Um, and so that that's the community we're building, yes. and at least attempting to build. And it's, like, messy. It's difficult. Um, it's super uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But a dominant culture norm is a right to comfort. So we've thrown that way out the window. There's nothing comfortable about what we're doing. But it is beautiful. Like when you're in thread, you can be your full self um, in a way that brings about a freedom that comes from the inside. Um, It's not something someone can give you. It is something that just where there is a space for you to just fully be yourself. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Long before presidential candidate Andrew Yang raised the idea of universal basic income, UBI has been widely discussed by economists. Is it a silver bullet or money without accountability? A first-of-its-kind cash assistance program in Jackson, Mississippi is providing relief for low-income families in public housing. Program organizer Aisha Yandoro says Magnolia Mothers Trust is distributing $1,000 a month for one year, no strings attached. If my families, if my moms that I work with are telling us that there is a lack of access of cash, of discretionary cash, to do whatever it is that they um, desire to do with it, it is my job as a leader to figure out how do we go about being in service. Uh, and that's what we did with the Magnolia Mothers Trust. Hear more from Yandoro and parent participant Ebony Beals in our sister podcast, Aspen Insight. In the episode, Cash Matters, Beals talks about her personal experience with poverty and how it's led her to fight for economic justice. Find the show on your favorite podcast player. Let's return to our featured conversation. Here's Casper Turkile. Sarah, you started to touch on some of these systemic drivers to disconnection. And I, I think in our you know, dominant culture conversations, there's a lot of conversation about social media. There's a lot of conversation about technology, which is definitely all real. Yeah. But I want to hear from you three, what are some of these other drivers towards disconnection? Rami, you were talking about housing policy. Yeah. Um, you talked about schools. Like, what, what, are, what are some of the other things that in your community you see uh, folks are struggling with because they're being driven um, by our dominant culture towards disconnection. Well, I don't mind just quickly picking up off that, you know, the housing piece, because you mentioned it when you were talking about the schooling and the flight. And, right. You know, it just made, if we look at our, the segregation in our urban centers across the country and what it produced, because our urban center realities are not disconnected from our suburban realities, like you're mm-hmm. saying, we're all interwoven. Mm-hmm. If you take a city like Chicago, you know, on September 12, 2001, a predominantly Arab-American community on the southwest suburbs had to confront, literally, a probably a group of around 150 people with Confederate flags wow. storming the mosque. They had to call SWAT teams to... Uh, to to kind of encircle the mosque. Mm -hmm. Having said that, that reality is not disconnected from the urban realities that have created the segregation. You know, those same individuals were very intimately connected to families that moved out Mm -hmm. of neighborhoods that saw themselves under siege, 
who were confronting king and marchers who felt like they were losing everything. They were sold a lie that said proximity to the other, and particularly in the United States, proximity to blackness, right? In the early 20th century, when whiteness is being created as a social construct. Before that, in a city like Chicago, you were Italian, you were Lithuanian, you were Polish, you were in these neighborhoods. But the very structured ways in which the presence, large presence of black folks, particularly coming from a, a really, you know, when we talk about the great migration, sometimes we can mistakenly feel like it was just a bunch of families <laughs> packing the station wagon and going on a nice trip. They were, it was a reign of terror, as Brian Stevenson and others <laughs> talked about. And when you, you know, think about what families were fleeing from and fleeing to, right, right it was really terror from on the way and when they arrived, just another form Mm -hmm. of a lot of that. So the structural pieces then that led Mm -hmm. to those very angry people who find themselves in a a, a neighborhood like Bridgeview now confronting the other, in this case, Mm Arabs or Palestinians who they feel like this we've been running our whole lives we've been we've been uh, we've been you know made to uh, our, our wealth and our accumulation of wealth been threatened and so those structural policies that have created the climate that I think we see on a large scale nationally now have really been embedded very mechanically. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a book called American Apartheid mm-hmm. uh, written in the 80s that really helped to give you the real mechanics of redlining and restricted covenants and all the ways in which the way in which we take for granted now the very segregated realities that have created communities that are not only disconnected from one another in the type of interpersonal way that you're talking about, but kind of very disconnected from even having to drive by one another. You know, there was a moment where sociologists used to talk about the Gold Coast and the slum phenomena in the early 20th centuries, where there was kind of wealth juxtaposed with extraordinary disparity. And But at that point, at least the folks living in the Gold Coast had to ride by the slum. Now we live in realities where gated communities and kind of distant realities, don't, you, don't even have to, you don't even have to drive right. by it right. and see it. So I would just say that those ongoing structural mechanisms, yeah. coupled with the fact that we have yet, even in today's moment, we really unpack the very real ways in which we've, you know, notions like, whiteness Mm -hmm. or how we've identified our very irrational fear of the other Mm -hmm. that still pervades and it's undergirding our culture and it's not like we very rarely are students college students or even you know certainly high school students given the real tools to unpack how prevalent those ideas still are in the way we think about the world or the way we navigate the the, you know our neighborhoods That's a great point, Rami and Sarah, when we're talking about housing and we're talking about um, housing injustice and we're talking about gentrification. One of the major nonprofits that we work with in D.C. is Empower D.C., which is a longstanding organization that has been fearlessly fighting for um, housing justice in D.C., specifically in Ivy City, uh, a black neighborhood where there is no place for young children to play. There's no place for young children to go. There's no place for them to continue to grow and foster the understanding of who they are and to know the rich history of Ivy City. Mm-hmm. And so the the fight for home is so real. But I would offer that it's real outside of ourselves is also inside of ourselves. So as we are working with our artists and our multicultural interfaith uh 
community, we're constantly meeting the barrier of um, mirroring each other, mm. but not wanting to see that reflection, right? Mm. And so uh, battling oppressions. And so if I say that um, I am a black woman and it's challenging for me to make ends meet and to pay my bills and to come into this workplace and to be seen and you are a Muslim woman and you're having your disparities, how do we have a conversation across those borders? How are we breaking down those systems that say that we are against each other? How do we break down those systems that uplift againstness? So the duality of how we're doing this work in community with community is really present when we're working with partners like Empower DC that are constantly struggling uh, to make sure that these communities that have been around since DC was created are still there and that their land stones, their, their, their landscape remains intact. We're also thinking about that internal struggle too. How do we remain intact in this fight? How do we stay present to this fight? How do we stay present and accountable to each other? And so I would say the system of, uh, Perfectionism mm. that's present in whiteness is really at the central uh, mm. combining tool of loneliness. Mm. I have to be perfect with you in order that's to right. cross these boundaries. I have that's to right. be. I have to show up perfectly. I cannot make mistakes. And the same thing is present in when we're doing this battling for housing justice. When we're constantly out here, how many times are we going to pick it up when this mm. system, as you said, Sarah, is constantly on our backs, mm. saying that it can't be done? How many different angles can we come at and try again and try? again and then also face that mirror of againstness mm. that is created through um, the isolation of white supremacy. So mm. I would say that those systems are constantly breeding in our work and it's constantly um, just a, more than a sore spot. Mm. It is a boulder mm. that knocks down and I have to choose if I'm willing, able, or even equipped to get back up. Mm. So I'm going to this, and forgive me, Sarah, I, I, I want to jump on this because this is exactly where I want to go, which is what are the practices then within each of your communities that do exactly this, that, that keep people resilient? That yes. What are the practices of meaning making, of integrating those experiences, physical practices, emotional practices? And then also what are the relational practices? Like are people making art together? Like what, what, is, what is happening in your communities that, that do that yeah. meaning making connection? Can you, can you talk to that? Yeah, absolutely. So in our community, um, like you said, it's messy, <laughs> yes. right? And so especially in this time and age now that says that I can block you when mm. it gets messy. I can block you when you say something I don't like. You know, I can choose to look away. I can choose to put up some shield that I am no longer dealing with you because you crossed that line and I'm complete in this relationship and complete and trying to understand who you are. We face those daily mm -hmm. in an interfaith multicultural community. Uh, and so what we do is we, we go on that growing edge of saying what needs to be said. You may not have thought it well out. You may not have, have a hypothesis, a thesis, a whole understanding of why you feel this way, where it's coming from. And it may hurt and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And so it gets very, very messy. It gets very, very chaotic which means that all of my stuff comes up. There are wounds in the way. Mm. 
And so authentic relationship says that I can acknowledge those wounds in a way. I can acknowledge when and where I enter within them and how I want to deal with them. And so in our community, what we do is we do create art together. We do create that space where there are some words that the trauma is so deep Mm -hmm. that I can't, I don't even know how to talk to you, how to look you in the eye in a real way, how to even be in the same space. In our fellowship training program, we're constantly training how to deconstruct those different levels of white supremacy premises thought Mm. and how we deal with one another and even in the word deal Mm, there's an energy Mm, but that's the truth of where it is (laughs) right now Mm. you know (laughs) even in the word of how can I deal with you like how can you know the the level of toleration like you said um, is really present how do we continue to sculpt away at that Mm -hmm. and how do I continue to be willing so art is central to it because if my spirit is depleted and I am giving up then I can come back with a call or response how y'all doing (laughs) y'all you know and how and bring in a community saying community sayings have been central to mm. black communities, to indigenous communities. Let's saying, similar to what you were talking about, zero points and circles, the power of a circle, the power of a cipher, the power of hip-hop artists coming together with visual artists, mm. the power of working something through in a tactile way, the power of embodiment that says that I can come up and stand in my body mm. and be safe with you and work some things out, that I can just shake a, li- shake a little bit right mm. here, just, just shake something off. That there is power in that, right? Mm. (laughs) There's power in that. And so the practice is how do we be with one another? Mm. Through art making, through practice of coming back to something that I don't want to come back to, through the resilience of knowing that um, if I make a mistake, I am not the mistake. Mm. A mistake was made, but I am not the mistake. That's big. In trauma healing work. Mm. I am not the mistake. A mistake has been made, but I am not the mistake. So really deconstructing that through art making has been big in our community. Mm. Beautiful. Mm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Practices. Yeah. Before practices, I just wanted to comment. Um, we had just taken a trip down to EJAI. Yes. And that's a practice. Yeah. Uh, travel together. Oh, we definitely travel together. Yes. Um, longer story. <laughs> uh, but one of the things... that we had asked their staff, we were looking at these photographs, and the photographs were um, of the lynchings, but the photographs themselves focused on the faces of the people in the Mm. audience, Mm. not on those being lynched. And someone asked why. One reason was to not perpetuate Mm. um, normalizing violence Mm -hmm. against black and brown people. But another reason why was to acknowledge that we have Anyone in this room has been born into these systems. Mm. We have all been normed into this culture. And what they pointed out is there was this little child looking up at the person being lynched, this white child, and they said, that is a form of child abuse. Mm. What was happening to that white child is a form Mm. of child abuse, right? Mm. So thinking about the psychology of all these, Mm. like all Mm. the various angles and Mm. how it impacts people, it's... Mm. um, it's just incredibly, um, I think, complicated. But yeah. in terms of practices, um, you know, we we use kind of three basic things mm-hmm. to like add rigor to help with the mess because <laughs> yeah. it is messy. So we have a set of norms. There's 16 norms. These things outline the ways that we're going to behave when we interact with each other. Mm-hmm. So it's things like 
call a thing a thing, um, <laughs> or we value directness with kindness. Mm-hmm. So if we have lunch together and I have something between my teeth and we go through the entire lunch and you don't tell me, I'm not sure you're my friend. So like, mm-hmm. if you can't tell me that I have something between my teeth, you're likely not going to tell mm-hmm. me something really important mm-hmm. that I need to hear mm-hmm. about how I'm showing up in the world. Um, and so these sets of norms guide how we're going to behave. One of them is assume the best of intentions, right? So if you can just start in any conversation with something just happened and I'm upset, what is the best possible version Mm. of what I just heard or the best possible intention that this person could have had? It'll change your entire way of Mm. reacting. Um, So we have norms. Um, one of those norms is is just incredible vulnerability, mm-hmm. right? And modeling that mm. um, by the adults, having the adults model what it is to share openly and be vulnerable. Mm. But to have norms isn't enough because That's you right. have to actually create what we use as spaces and structure mm-hmm. to deploy the norms mm-hmm. repeatedly over and over and over and over again. Yes. The thing about this is this is not new. There are lots of institutions who figured this out. There are like really no new ideas. I'm sorry to tell you at the ideas. There are no new ideas. They're just ways of implementing them differently, right? The military is a good example. The the military is a very clear set of norms. When you meet somebody that's been in the military, they make their bed differently. Mm -hmm. They shake your hand differently. They look you in the eye, right? So... There's lots of institutions who have said about a set of norms. The challenge is the norms have often been oppressive norms. Um, And so how do we then utilize those structures and spaces in the same way to set a new set of norms? Um, And so that's what we do. So an example of our structure is we believe everyone in Thread is on a journey of growth. Mm. Um, and that is about finding what we call your dot. So your dot is your intersection of your passion, your skills, and what the world needs. Mm. Um, in order to do that, you need to be in relationship with others, but you also need a coach. So it's really hard um, if you're a volunteer in Thread and you drive to a young person's house to give them a ride to school, and for like 11 straight days they refuse to answer the door. Mm. That's difficult, right? And so you need someone to help coach you through that. So there's a person called the head of family. The head of family coaches the volunteers, not just on all things thread, but on life. Mm. Um, Because often what causes people to step out of relationship isn't just conflict in the relationship. It's something outside of it. Maybe that volunteer is struggling in college themselves or in their marriage or with their children. And so if they can get support, they're more likely to stay in the relationship with the young person. Um, But the other piece of our structure is we have what's called collaborators. Collaborators are people who provide pro bono services and expertise. So if someone's going to be evicted, an attorney might provide pro bono legal services to prevent that eviction. Um, And so what we find is our structure, we use our structure not to function in a hierarchical way to reinforce this oppressive um, culture. But instead, we use the structure to create access to people who mm. want to find each other. Mm. So if we assume the best mm. of intentions, what I've found is most people want to get together with people different. Than, they just don't know how. Like, society has got us so segregated. Like, if you wanted to go have lunch with someone that you view as different, where would you find them? Like, there's, right. like seriously. Um, and so, you know, just like a, a great example of this, we had a young man... Um, 
Raekwon, who had been badly brutalized by the police, um, had all his teeth knocked out. And as a result of this, missed a few days of work. Um, this is years ago now. Um, and when he missed work, ended up losing his job. So he said, like, hey, do you know of anyone who could, like, help me with a job? And we had a collaborator, this man, um, Roland, who his father happens to be this um, incredibly successful founder of a financial institution. But Roland um, had become addicted to heroin in his early teens. He had come out of that, founded a lawn care company. Now it's a multi-million dollar business itself. Um, and so I was talking to Roland. I said, hey, you know, do you have a job for Rayquan? He's like, sure. <laughs> so so we, we connect um, Roland and Rayquan. And what happens is if you were to talk to, this is maybe now four years later that they've been working together. Um, one, Rayquan has really found like his community in that company and in finding his trade and like himself in that work. But if you talk to Roland, Roland will tell you that having gone through a divorce in the last few years and a number of other things, that the key to his sobriety has Mm. been his relationship with Raekwon. Mm. And so, again, if you think about, like, who's the have, who's the have not, who's helping, who's being helped, Mm. um, it's utilizing the structure to create the access. Mm -hmm. And then it's when we come together in spaces, to your point, it's this great point, like, are we sitting in a circle? Mm-hmm. Or are we sitting in a row? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, what food are we serving? Yeah. Who, who's the food, food catering to? Um, what songs are we singing? Yeah. Um, you know, the example, we had a holiday party, and we were, like, really trying to figure this out because we were going to have 700 people, a diverse <laughs> group of 700 people, yeah. age, race, gender, class, like, about as diverse as you can get. And we are like how are we going to get everybody on the dance floor? And this might sound like a dumb thing, Mm -hmm. but it's really not. Because if you get everybody dancing and they have a good time, like they're going to come back, right? And the the idea is to make what's really heavy a little bit lighter, And and that's a a practice, like dancing together. It's a practice, right, yeah. Exactly. We love to dance. So we said, okay, let's, like, how do do we want to do this? Again, like, it's not about including people in white spaces, but what does, what does this space even look like? So we started with um, um, West African drummers, dancers. They came in. Everybody was like, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, like, the young people in Thread, like, jumped out on the dance floor because they were doing this rope-skipping thing. And then, and then it was like you're standing there, though, and you're looking at the dance floor, and it's like, all of the young black kids are on the floor mm. and everybody else is just sitting. And we're like, hmm. So there's this guy, Sean, middle-aged white guy, and he just, <laughs> he just said, screw it. And you watch him, literally, he's like, screw it. He just goes out there and he starts going at it like all over the place. And what happened is he opened up the space. Mm-hmm. He didn't put his toe in. He was like, I'm going to get all the way in there. <laughs> I'm going in. Somebody come with me. And everybody did. And so all of a sudden you find like everybody's out there, everybody's dancing. And then you look around and you're like, oh, there's still some people sitting. Who's sitting? It was people over 50. We're like, oh, okay. How do you then like make sure, right? But we had thought this through because we've been doing this for a minute. 
And so we played the electric slide, right? Because everybody knows the electric slide, right? And now all of a sudden, like, you don't even have room on the dance floor because you got everybody going, right? So it's like, I know these things sound so simple, but they're complicated. When you bring together a diverse group, it's like you have to make the space um, a, a tool to reinforce the norms so that people understand, so that Sean understands in thread screw it, just get out there, right? Like, you know, and that, that's, that's kind of like when we, when we fail, right. it's when we've either done something structurally or with a space that reinforces the dominant, dominant norms. Yeah. And mm-hmm. boy, do you know it when it happens and yeah. it's bad. It's yeah. really bad. Mm-hmm. And when we succeed, you can just like feel it in your mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. You the so energy yeah. is just there. Yeah. Yeah. So Rami, I'm going to give you just two minutes. I think so much of what has been uh, the practices are really articulated really well. I mean, I, we, I would say the way we summarize some of them, and they, and they really resonate with a lot of what you were sharing, yeah. both of you. Talk about run to the mud, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Run to the mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> essentially embrace the mess. Uh, be and all of the things that we're talking about and and mud you know the spaces that we work in the marginal spaces that we work in the intersectional where bring all the issues i also use another both intersectionality has this kind of sexy buzzword kind of appeal right now but it and it's relevant but you know a lot of our communities were intersectional long before and a lot of our work was long before the term was being used because it was really layered and being able to work and exist in these spaces you had to know how to be literally you know you had the literacy around intersectionality the other thing is this notion interstitiality being being willing to you know and i think both of these experience a lot of these practices speak to your earlier point which is they draw deeply from faith traditions and I think yes. also allow us yes. to recover the extraordinary right. relevance right. of those faith traditions yeah. in allowing us to really facilitate and fuel these extraordinarily critical practices. It takes tremendous amount of faith and a greater power to be able to make yourself vulnerable to run to the mess. Yes. And muddy and those spaces are muddy, they're messy and mud has both the capability of making you feel incapacitated <laughs> stuck in the mud mm. But there's also power. There's a lot of spiritual metaphor in mud as yes. being, you know, we have a tradition. All of you come from Adam and Eve, and they came from mud, mm. right? And it's a reminder, you come from this, you return to this. Mm. Remind yourself of that as you work with and alongside communities. And also this idea that mud is malleable, right? Mud has the ability of recasting yourself, reshaping yourself, re, you know, building a new narrative together. So running to the mud and the other practices mining the gaps mm-hmm. right being capable and willing and open to talking yeah. openly about the gaps between our professed ideals again religious traditions have been good about this mm-hmm. right when they're working in their best mm-hmm. challenging us to think about all these lofty ideals yes. in our traditions that we aspire towards and the gap between those ideals and our day-to-day live realities mm-hmm. and not to ignore those gaps mm-hmm. not to feel like I'm a hypocrite because of those 
gaps, right, right. but yeah. to mine those gaps, mm. to be embrace those gaps mm. and to be aware of those gaps and to speak about them mm. and to challenge one another. What does it mean to live our life as a relevant Jew drawn from the extraordinary mm. prophetic tradition and then deal with this inequity? Mm. What does yes. it mean to be a practicing Pentecostal to go into a city where you have such extraordinary pain outside yes. your doorstep and you mm. sit through church service and no one's talking about you go back? What does it mean to be a Muslim that has to contend with notions of these great attributes of mercy and justice, mm-hmm. yet you go in and out of the mosque and you're not charged to do mm-hmm. something meaningful in the world. There's a gap there. Yes. Mind it. Deal with it. And then lastly, I think the observation is that moments matter, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Moments matter. And there's a difference between moments and events. And when moments, I think, are about being, you know, so much of our religious traditions are about moments, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's the Via Dolorosa was a moment, mm-hmm. right? There was a moment of Salim. There was a moment, you know, until this day, Hundreds of millions of human beings across the planet have been mobilized, I think, in great ways, mm. right? I'm one that still sees beauty and light in the faith traditions. Mm. I wasn't brought up that way. I've come to see that through my organizing work, through what I've seen faith communities do. Mm. And I think that's also a point that those moments, making moments matter, mm. really helps to illustrate. It is critical mm. to continue to lift up the role mm. that faith traditions are having every day in communities to actually bring communities together. To I'll end with this. One moment with us yeah. was really building the, uh, the first memorial to uh, Martin Luther mm. King in the city mm. of Chicago. And it was not a memorial, not just a big granite statue of King. It was a living memorial. We called it the living you know, memorial to King and the Chicago Freedom Movement. And it not only memorialized the moment that King was stoned in that park, but it also memorialized people like Rabbi Marx, Imam Morty Muhammad, and all of the marchers with them. And we also lifted up, and it was sculpted by our sculptors into brick, mm, you yes. know. And it was made in our ceramic studio, these images of what home. We asked to over 300 people, what does home mean to you? And they built that in the ceramic studio. Latina grandmothers, aunties, mm-hmm. Arab folks, young kids. And then they stitched that into this beautiful mosaic that now sits on the bench of the memorial. And it's kind of this ode to building what a beloved community could actually look like a home that actually encompasses mm. us and on the on the side of the memorial there's home written in eight languages starting with Potawatomi the original you know caretakers of the land and then thinking about the notion of home in, in our languages in Arabic mm. it's one of the words for home is uh, it's, it comes from the notion of sakina sukun which means a place of tranquility mm-hmm. right and so what does it mean together mm-hmm. to collectively build a home that that allows us to feel like we are living in spaces of tranquility. Mm-hmm. And I think that's possible. And when we marched together to unveil that memorial, mm-hmm. we gathered over 1,400 people. We built this over two years. It wasn't one pot of money. It was churches. It was synagogues. It was organizers, a hip-hop activists. We brought it all together. And that march that day reassembled uh, literally. Mm-hmm. And it was the largest march since that time when King marched over 50 years mm-hmm. ago. And we marched on the 50th memorial of mm-hmm. King in that community and now today Marquette Park is not known Mm. as just the space of trauma where King was stoned although we remember that history but it was the space that we built a memorial that lifts up a vision of what a real beloved community could look like Mm -hmm. and that moment continues to matter and endure and leave us with a possibility Mm. again of how we can radically reimagine the world together thank you thank you very much for being here I really really appreciate it thank you to our fabulous panelists Sarah, Rami, and Omni. Thank you, everyone.
Sarah Heminger co-founded Thread with her husband. Thread's goal is to use relationships to help end social isolation and build a more equitable future. Rami Nashashibi runs Iman. He served on the President's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships under Obama. Amini Glover coordinated the 2019 Women's March. She's a spoken word artist whose mission is to ignite the power of the arts for social change. Casper Turkheil is a co-founder of How We Gather and a Ministry Innovation Fellow at Harvard Divinity School. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.